You and I are created in God's image. But does that mean God looks like we do? Well, not exactly. Pull up a chair and pour yourself a cup of coffee, because we're about to explore this topic right now on Focal Point. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. And today we're sitting down with Pastor Mike Fabares to ask him a compelling listener question. Now, you've heard you have a soul and a spirit, but do you know the difference between the two? And how does it relate to being made in God's image? Well, these are good questions that deserve thoughtful answers. So we're turning the mic over now to Jay Wharton, the executive director of Focal Point, as he ventures to Ask Pastor Mike. Jay? Well, thank you, Dave. Pastor Mike, I have a very interesting question from a listener today. This listener asks, what is the difference between a soul and a spirit, or are they the same thing? Yeah, that's a great question. The words that we see, soul and spirit, are just two of several words that are used in the Bible. I mean, there are many ways to describe who we are, but what is really taken root in a lot of people's teaching is this distinction between the immaterial part of who we are and saying, well, there's two kinds of immaterial parts, soul, and usually when they say that, they mean the more kind of earthly, non-godly part of me, and then spirit, that has the connection to God. And that's a view we in theology talk about in terms of trichotomy. But I'm of the camp, which many people are, that soul and spirit are not distinctions between our immaterial part, that really the word soul is usually generally describing the whole of a person. In other words, he is immaterial and material. He's body and spirit, and the whole of who he is is often referred to as a living soul. And uh, it's much like the old uh, ship captains talking about how many souls on board. We're not talking about spirits, we're talking about people. And so I'm of the view that in the Bible, I think we see clearly we are material. That means we're body, we're tangible, and then we're immaterial. We are spirit. And the whole of who we are can rightly be described as soul. Like Genesis 2-7 talks about he, God formed us out of the dust of the ground. That's the material part. He breathed into us the breath of life or the spirit of life. That's the same Hebrew word. And we became a living creature or living soul. So that's my view. And again, I don't think it's worth Christians dividing over, but I believe we're two parts and there's not two components of my immaterial part. So how would someone who is a trichotomist argue the difference between a soul and a spirit? Are there two different words in the original languages, either in the Old or New Testament, that refer to two different words for that? Yeah. I mean, there are, both in Hebrew and in Greek. There's a distinction in the words, but so there is with other parts of who we are. We have strength. We have a mind. We have all of these elements describing parts of who we are, and they're just descriptive. But when you get down to it and you talk very technically about us, well, we are material and we're spiritual. We're non-material. We're, as I like to put it in my teaching, we're hardware and we're software. Now, we're one unified whole. I get that. At least in this particular point in human life on earth, we are one whole, but we have two distinct components. And that's why I am of the camp of being a, a dichotomist. I believe there's two clear, distinguishable parts. And though you can describe the immaterial parts with lots of different words, I don't think the Bible is making a clear-cut case between dividing up our immaterial part. Does this have anything to do when the Bible talks about us being made in the image of God? No. 
<laughs> not really, although, I mean, there's something germane to that in that we are made in the image of God, not physically, because clearly the Bible says in John chapter 4, God is not physical, He's spirit. And as Jesus said after His resurrection, when He wanted His disciples to touch His body to prove that He wasn't a ghost or a spirit, He said, spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see I have. So we know God does not have a material form. The images and the visions and so forth that we see recorded in the Bible are not to be taken as something literal that we can touch or feel. He's spirit, as 1 Timothy says. He is the invisible God. He dwells, 1 Timothy 6, in unapproachable light who no one has seen or can see. So we're not talking about God as a physical being. So I'm not made in the image of God in that I'm the template in a human form, the way that God is in some form. No, I'm in the form of God only insofar as my spirit has the capacities that his spirit has, at least those capacities he's chosen to share. I have unique characteristics, unlike the rest of the living creatures on the planet, that makes me like God. I'm in his image in that I have, as I often put it, intellect, emotion, and will, which are the components of personality, and that doesn't need a physical form, although we are put in physical form, and we're here now in a physical body, contained in a physical body. So speaking of that physical body we're contained in, obviously when we die, we're separated in some way from that physical body. Our soul is going to be, we trust in heaven, yet we're going to be reunited with that physical body again. Speak yes. a little bit about that. Yes. The Bible teaches, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are going to be at our point of death absent from the body, who we are, our software. And our hardware is going to be, uh, we're going to bury a body in the ground, and that body, what's left of that body, much like Christ's body in the sepulcher, in the tomb, is going to be resurrected on the day of God's resurrection. Those bodies will be remade, impervious to death. That body is going to be reunited with the software, our spirit. So when we die, we are separated from our bodies. We will be with him until we're reunited with our bodies at his return, and then we'll inhabit the earth. And there'll be, in my theology, several things that are going to take place. So that is going to be the end product, is we will be in bodies impervious to disease or death or decay or any of the problems we have now as fallen creatures, and we will be encased, our software will be encased in perfect hardware at that point. And uh, so, yeah, we will be separated. As it's put in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll be, Paul used the euphemism, we'll be naked. We'll be without our earthly tent for a while until that gets resurrected and remade. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I trust that's going to be an eye-opening conversation for some and helpful in understanding those two concepts. And we're going to continue this conversation with a message you did from the series Fallen Humanity, and the message is called Man in the Image of God. Probably once a month we get a question uh, about animals. We need to recognize, as high as they are in the creative order, there is a clear line of demarcation between every animal that God has ever made and mankind in Genesis. So let's get more specific here when we think this through. You have in Genesis 1.26 the statement, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And those two words play throughout this narrative and looking back to this narrative later in, in the Bible image and likeness. So often we found, especially in the early church when it moved to the West, that we had a lot of folks make a big distinction between likeness and image, that these meant two different things. I just want to look at these two words real briefly. Teslam, this Hebrew word that is translated image. 
if you looked this up and looked at every reference to it, you would find the definition would be similar to. It bears some semblance from one thing to the next. A painting, right, is not the real thing, but it's a, it's a semblance, it's, it's a depiction of it. And, and that's how it's often used in a very common sense. Demuth is the other word that's translated likeness. Image and likeness, similar to, you're certainly going to find that, but you're going to find this word used more often in terms of abstract references. For instance, here's an example from Psalm 58, verses 3 and 4. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. They're speaking lies. They have venom. They really don't have venom. Like the venom of a serpent. This is almost like an illustrative or parabolic reference. There's a semblance. There's a similarity. But it's more of an abstract correspondence. If you look for this distinction, which is very subtle, and you try to build theology on it, as some people have done in the past and some people do today, I, I think you'll come to some wrong conclusions. You know this, I trust, John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is described as spirit. In essence, he is spirit. That's the passage, woman at the well. Jesus says he's looking for worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. But the idea is he's spirit. And that was because we're doing away with the temple on Mount Gerizim. We're doing away with the temple in Jerusalem. And God's, you know, he's making a point about who God is. You can look elsewhere in the Bible. It's everywhere, right? God dwells in an approachable light. You know, no man has seen God or can see God. All the manifestations of God or the descriptions of God that's, that present him in, in physical terms. Clearly, when we talk just about directly what God is, he's, he's spirit. And whenever spirit is described in any detail, like it is in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, it couldn't be more clear that spirit is not physical. There's no physical component. Now, clearly, we believe in the incarnation, and Jesus Christ showed up, and I don't know, looks, he's got two ears, a nose, eyebrows, teeth, a chin, you know, elbows, he's got toenails. That, of course, you could say, well, sure, God, as he says to his disciples, is, is spirit, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We must not be talking about a visual image of something physical, because the Bible's clear that God is spirit. So what are we dealing with? To, to use a word that has been coined throughout discussions of what this means, let me introduce the word. We're talking about personhood. We clearly can't be talking about the physical aspects of God. We've got to be talking about whatever it means to speak of someone as a person. And by that, if you look at the context of what's going on there, it's certainly different than trees and rocks because it's animated, like animals are animated. They're alive. They move. They can make noises. They breathe. Whatever animated means, not in a physical sense, but as it relates to personhood, now I'm starting to get some sense of what it means that I'm made in God's image. To be made in God's image is more than just being animated and alive. It's having the ability to reflexively and rationally, intellectually think, to be able to cogitate, to be able to process thoughts in my mind that would come out in speech, could be creativity. Um, elsewhere we find, though we don't see it in Genesis chapter 1, but we see it by Genesis chapter 6, we've got all these chapters between 1 and 6 about people feeling all kinds of feelings, whether it's Adam or Eve or Cain, Abel. We've got lots of emotions being displayed, and then God comes in in Genesis 6 and says, I am grieved in my heart. 
And the idea of being pained in my heart, I'm having an emotional feeling about the sin on the planet. This is just prior to the flood. And of course, we see the correspondence. It's very different than just having something have animation or life. It goes beyond that. Volition, the ability to make rational decisions, to prompt, to plan, to strategize, to be able to have thoughts express themselves in a purpose a being that is not just flocking like an animal might flock together, but having the kind of concern for self-disclosure and the acquisition of knowledge of other human beings. And you say, well, how can God be relational and social? He was all by himself until he created Adam and Eve or Michael and Lucifer, right? No, of course not. That's the amazing thing about the triune God that we discover in the Bible is that he exists as some eternal fellowship Father, Son, and Spirit without any need for a bigger party than that, if you will, who's able to have relationship in the triunity of his makeup. Moral and ethical. This goes a bit further. We'll see these distinctions in passages like Psalm 32. When you get the description of animals in contrast to human beings, not having that ability to feel that grief and that guilt not because of something that hurt or not because of something that, that you know, was caught or exposed, but something that we just know through a conscience was wrong before God and his plan. To have a conscience, to be moral, to have a sense of ethics, to feel that sense of shame and guilt over a decision that didn't just destroy, but one that hurt a relationship. Of course, in context, we have so much talk about dominion and jurisdiction. This is yours, this earth, subdue it, these plants, these animals. Limited dominion, but it's a dominion that you have, just like God has dominion. And even that idea of subduing the world, creating that element that's going to produce something that will be much like we had described in the first 25 verses of the Bible, and that is God creating, giving us a pattern of creating six days a week, producing something, creating something, standing back and saying that was good. I mean, if there's anything that distinguishes us from the rest of God's creation, it would be that we're animated, we have intellect, emotion, and will. We're relational, moral, ethical. We have dominion and sovereignty over things. We create and produce and even produce things just for the pleasure of standing back and saying, it was good, that's really good. Art, I mean, you don't see a lot of art shows among the animals. All right, let's keep moving. I think about life here on earth and what we experience as human beings now and the picture of God. If you have a really good understanding of the Bible, wow, it just seems like the chasm between God and his image in, in, in the pages of scripture and God's image in my life or my neighbor's life or my coworker. It seems like there's a big gap between those two. Well, as I like to say, there's the idea of God's image being damaged. It certainly is damaged, but it's not destroyed. There's a lot of things you can say about, I mean, even if you're thinking in theological terms, like words like total depravity, you can use that word if you want. It, it really does not in, in any way destroy the image of God. To use Ryrie's phrase, professor there at Dallas, he liked to say the image of God is defaced, but it's not erased. That's another way to say it. That's his phrase, not mine. But the idea of being damaged, not destroyed, defaced, but not erased, that's what we need to affirm. This is a very familiar psalm, Psalm 8. 
Verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the psalmist says, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars. I mean, and without TV and without a lot of city lights, I mean, you can imagine, it's like being out camping all the time. You see the, the, the magnitude of nature. And he says, when I think of all that, I think, what is man, human beings, that you're mindful of him, speaking in the singular here, mankind, and the son of man. I mean, here we are, we're generations from the first man, and it's getting worse, not better in terms of who we are. And he says that you would care for him. Look at all the sin and history of mankind, the fallenness that's displayed itself in sin and murder and rape and pillaging people and wars. Why would you care? Yet, you've made him, here's his worth, a little lower than, now here's how the ESV translates it, heavenly beings. And the reason I think the translators here translated heavenly beings is it's been a debate. Elohim, if you know, is the word that's often translated, usually translated uh, God, usually translated with a capital G. Now, the problem with God is he's so majestic and so transcendent and so great that he is described, one of the nouns for him, Elohim, is described, describing God or depicting God, but the word itself is plural, which is a little confusing, plural. Anytime you see a Hebrew word transliterated with an I-M at the end of it, Elohim, cherubim, I-M at the end, that's plural. So when you say Elohim, that can be capital G God because he's so great he's not contained in a singular, right? We call that a majestic plural in Hebrew grammar. Or you could be talking about small g, plural s, gods. The idols are called gods. The things that people trust in are called the gods. Even the angels are called the gods. So here the translation is heavenly beings. And that goes way back to before the time of Christ. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in the wake of Alexander the Great before the time of Christ, a couple centuries before Christ, it was translated into Greek. Now, these 70 scholars that worked on this took every passage and they were caring about the true translation and, of this text. And so they're very careful about moving Hebrew words into Greek words. And in this text, it was not translated theos or thei. It wasn't translated in a plural. It wasn't gods and it wasn't God. They translated this angelos. Angelos, you know, because it's transliterated into English, is the word angels. So what the psalmist is referring to, we don't know, but all we know is that it's something about something greater than us, whether it's the angelic court, whether it's some sense of, of God himself, but here just a little bit lower than something so beyond human, something supernatural, that's how you've created us and you've crowned us. Here's two words usually given to God. All the glory, all the honor, all the riches and power go to God. Well, here, God has endowed human beings with glory and honor. Now, these aren't redeemed people. These aren't Christian people. These aren't the, you know, the priests of Israel. This is just a description of mankind. You know that from the singular there in verse 4. What is the son of man that you care for him, mankind? You've given him, now we're back to Genesis chapter 1, dominion over all the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. He's supposed to be in charge of things down here. All the sheep, all the oxen, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea, he's in charge down here. He's at the pinnacle of creation. He's not the largest, he's not the strongest, he's not the fastest, he can't fly, but he's supposed to be, and he is, endowed with such glory and honor that he's just a little bit lower than the gods or the angelic beings or perhaps God himself. Big statement. 
about mankind even after the fall. You can go throughout the Bible and find those things. But you keep talking about there's no distinction really between Christians and non-Christians. Well, let me make just the point that there is a distinction. <laughs> there's always a priority in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, as it relates to what regeneration does. Regeneration. Generation. To make. Genesis. Generation. Regeneration. To remake. To reborn. You know, to, to rebirth someone. To be born again. Someone who's born again has in their life according to the Bible, this restored image of God, and that becomes something that now is my goal. Sanctification, usually as we use it just as a standalone word, we're describing a process. And the process is that trying to get back to and restore the image of God. What kind of thinking would he have? What kind of emotions would he share right now? What kind of decisions and planning and strategy would he make? What kind of even things would he do that he would stand back and say, that's a good product, that's well done? Those are the kinds of things I'm shooting for in my sanctification. Of course, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is held up as the perfect template for us because the people in the first century got to experience him and see him and listen to him teach. And in Romans, in the wake of all that, verse 29, it says, those he foreknew, that is, foreloved, ahead of time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's a process of conforming them to be more like Christ. And we say that all the time, to be Christ-like. That's the goal, as it's put in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. When one turns to the Lord, there's the idea. I think it's a strepho, the word there. Uh, like metanoia, to, to repent, to turn to the Lord. That veil is removed because the context there is talking about how Satan is one who blinds. He'll make that very clear in the next chapter. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I'm no longer blinded here. And with all, with unveiled faces, because it was the parallel of Moses who had that veil over his face, now it's gone, we can now behold the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image. As you stare at Christ, as you see who he is, as you study him, you stare into that image, you get that idea, you, inf you, you now are informed of Christ and that transforms you into the same image from one degree of glory, you look more like Christ this year, I hope, than you did five years ago. You're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this all comes from the Lord who is the Spirit and that is his goal in your sanctification. To be more like that original creation before the fall. That's the process. My sanctification is a restoration of God's image not his physical image, but his likeness. You're listening to a special message called Man in the Image of God with author and speaker, Pastor Mike Fabares on Focal Point. And you can hear the complete unabridged sermon when you visit focalpointradio.org. You can also listen through the free Focal Point app or on many of your favorite podcasting apps. Well, we're living in unpredictable times. And yet the more you study Bible prophecy, the more hope and assurance you have about the future, no matter what happens. Author and television host John Ankerberg and the late theologian Reynold E. Showers provide a helpful guide in their book called The Most Asked Prophecy Questions. And we'll send you a copy as our way of saying thanks when you donate to support this ministry today. Call 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. 85, or give online at focalpointradio.org. You can also write Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
When you give to Focal Point, know that you're truly making a difference. Through your generosity, we can deliver Pastor Mike's compelling, expositional teaching by internet, podcast, app, and hundreds of radio stations nationwide. Thank you for investing so others can listen and grow. Now, if you've never contacted us before, please reach out to let us know you're listening. We're always encouraged to hear how the ministry has impacted your life. And we'll send you a free gift just for getting in touch with us today. It's a pamphlet that examines the different ideas about the return of Jesus that divides believers. It's called Four Views of the End Times. And you can request your copy when you call 888-320-5885. This helpful resource includes comparison charts of the four end times timelines with Bible references. It can be read in 30 minutes or less and is helpful for Bible studies, Sunday school lessons, and Christian school curriculum. To request your free pamphlet, call 888-320-5885. Or if it's easier, you can request it online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, wishing you a restful weekend ahead, and be sure to join us next time as we continue exploring the depths of Scripture right here on Focal Point. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.